Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. And welcome back to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, your host. And this week, we are welcoming the fabulous Ellie Mistel, who, as many of you know, is a legal commentator on MSNBC and elsewhere. He's also a justice correspondent for The Nation. And he's written this fabulous book that we're going to talk about called Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. This is a very active and, um, and almost belligerent interview. Uh, Ellie and I are both former lawyers, uh, and we've got a lot to say about the Constitution and where we are and the midterms and the coming term of the Supreme Court. So I'm excited to share it with you. One word of warning, this is an explicit broadcast. Ellie and I took our policy that is pro-swearing to heart. So if you've got little ones in the room, you may want to plug in the headphones. Thanks so much and enjoy. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Living Through It. And I'm so excited because today we get to have the fabulous Ellie Mistel here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm thrilled for this because, you know, we, we, are, we are very pro-cursing on this podcast, but we haven't done very much of it. And I had a moment where I was like flipping through the earliest chapters of your book where I was like, I expect that Ellie and I will probably be swearing up a storm on the podcast I didn't today. I did fucking know we could curse. That's yes. that's. <laughs> Cursing is permitted. In fact, it's encouraged. So, so that's good. Um, okay. So here's what I want to talk about. We're, we are just at the start of this Supreme court term and, um, man, it's like a terrifying lineup. Um, you know, I know that uh, on the day we're recording this, we've just gotten through the voting rights act oral argument, um, in the case that's looming about section two. And you wrote this incredible piece for the nation that just sort of broke down the scariest cases that were upcoming, um, you know, kind of at the risk of frightening our, our listeners a little bit, we should probably go through what's at stake because, you know, it was bad enough with the gun case last term with Dobbs um, and all the other sort of like rollbacks of rights that we saw. But I'm, you know, I'm really concerned about the Supreme Court kind of ending democracy as we know it for once and for all this term. Yeah, Elizabeth, I mean, look, this you got to think of the Supreme Court like you would think of a serial killer. I mean, quite honestly, it's a it's an extremist court. And what last term proved is that they can do their extremist stuff without getting in trouble, right? Like, so it's a it's a killer that's gotten now a taste, that's gotten better at its job because it knows that nobody's coming to stop them. Roe was the big thing. Roe was the big point where 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 they were they were still worried that perhaps there would be an uprising, perhaps people would take back the power, perhaps people wouldn't let them get away with it. 
And the reality is that people did let them get away with it. Roe was already, um, um, you know, I saw a recent poll that where, where, where it's not even people's top issue. I mean, like it, it, it popped for a while. It was big over the summer, but now we're back that we're back into the fall. Now that we're into, you know, heavy midterm election cycle, Roe and, and abortion rights are being sublimated um, to a bunch of other kind of the, you know, the American people tend to have the attention span of a goldfish yeah. anyway. But people don't understand that that it was only that fear of public retribution, of public unrest that was keeping these conservatives anywhere close and now that that is gone now that that last stop is is gone what we will see this term is conservatives just you know feeling themselves and and, and shooting their shots and taking i worry i fear the most extremist versions of themselves that they can take at every opportunity so yeah i think this term is going to be very bad and just to close before we get into the specifics let's remember this term and every term for the rest of the natural lives of most of the people listening to the show will be bad or very bad as long as we allow six conservative justices to control the law for everybody. Yeah. We're going to talk in a minute about the potential of court expansion because I, you and I are very much on the same page with this. And yet there doesn't seem to be anything looming on the horizon that's going to kind of like take us there. I am curious, though, to hear your thoughts about um, particularly the the Harper case, because that's the one that I've been kind of watching um, with great, great trepidation. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, it's a case that puts on target for the Supreme Court the prospect of state legislatures, um, state secretaries of state or state election officials being able to just like toss out election results that they don't like. So um, so we should probably talk a little bit about, you know, the potential right. outcome of that and where that sits. So to get people to really give people the context for more V. Harper, I got to take people all the way back to the year 2000. I'm a 1L law student in the year 2000. Um, great time to be at law school because that was Bush v. Gore. Mm -hmm. right? And I remember sitting on my chaise lounge in my crappy one hour apartment watching the election results and realizing that we weren't going to have results that night. Right. Um, one of the things that happened in Bush v. Gore, besides, I mean, the, that decision to me is, is the is the starting gun on the entire extremist rightward shift of the Supreme Court. But one of the things that happened in Bush v. Gore is that the conservatives were in a tough spot because they had to find a way to make George W. Bush president over the objection of the Florida State Supreme Court, which said that the recount had to continue, right? Now, normal conservative logic is you listen to the state court. States' rights, remember? Yep. Like, that's these people, right? So they had to figure out a way to overcome that states' rights argument. And William Rehnquist um, in 2000 surfaced this idea of the independent state legislature theory, the idea that it wasn't the state court's but actually the state legislatures that had final say over the voting laws, rights, and restrictions in each state, and that the state legislature on its own authority could willy-nilly make up laws, disregard some laws, change other laws, even after the election had already started, ex post facto laws um, to uh, do whatever the state legislature wanted to do. That was a ridiculous opinion in 2000. Rehnquist wrote that as a concurrence. It was not the controlling opinion in Bush v. Gore. But you know who signed on to it? Justice Clarence Thomas. Yes. 
So more V Harper now, 22 years later, is finally putting Rehnquist's cockamamie theory to the test. And we know they already have Clarence Thomas, um, in, uh, um, who is going to sign on to the cockamamie theory that the uh, state legislature, not the state courts, not the state constitution, not the state governor, not anybody else, just the state legislature, has final say over what results, what electoral results should be counted and what electoral results shall be thrown away at their behest. Um, so yeah, that's coming down the pipe this 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 term. If if the conservatives win, like I said, you've already got Thomas. You probably already yeah. have Neil Gorsuch, who is a Scalia yeah. clone, who also would have signed on to it. And you probably already have Samuel Alito, who kind of hates the living. Um, <laughs> that leaves uh, uh, Roberts, Barrett, and uh, alleged attempted rapist Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh has already said that he thinks they're very important issues raised by Morvey Hopper, so we can count him as four. And now they just need to pick up either Roberts or Barrett to um, to make this new rule that would allow state legislatures to literally throw out the results, the electoral results that they don't like um, in red states. So that's I mean, that's democracy on the table, right? Like, you can't can't get like I, I there are cases that are dearly important to me in this term, but I can't say that anything else is more important than whether or not we're allowed to have a democracy. Everything else is kind of like vying for the second most important um, thing this term. Yeah, I mean, I I will tell you that when I was getting ready for this last night, what I was thinking about was like, like Supreme Court Thanos style, right? That this is the moment where they kind of snap their fingers on democracy. I'm sorry, I'm way into the Avengers metaphor, but you know, and and it's over, right? Like it all goes away because I don't know how well, only I mean, for I half of some, us, right? Because white men still right. get to have their democracy. Right, right, exactly. Right. White conservative men still get to have their democracy. Yeah, no question. Um, I I am, I have my own predictions about the potential outcome from this because, you know, I live in California. I have a governor who is standing up in most of the right ways for most of the right things. Um, and I know that, you know, one of the big concerns is about what happens when one state starts to, so that we've already confronted this after Dobbs, right? Where one state says, we're not going to honor the other state's laws, right? Um, What do we do when there's a circumstance where certain states say, this person was elected president and other states say, no, sorry, we're tossing out the results. And certain states say, we're not going to accept that. That's kind of the end of the Republic. Um, I also... I also think, Elizabeth, that that uh, the, where I hold out hope for a 5-4 um, decision rejecting this theory is also it, – it's it's a little bit cynical, but they're winning without this. Yes. Like the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court have more than enough kind of ammunition in their stockpile to severely weaken democracy without pretending like it doesn't matter at all. Right. And so even the case that, you know, we're recording when we're recording this, as you said, we're just off the oral arguments in Merrill v. Milligan, which is a huge uh, voting rights case, um, a Section 2 uh, voting rights case. Conservatives can use that case to essentially end the Voting Rights Act, which is only the most important legislative act probably in American history. They'll just take that away. And that alone, just suppressing enough black and brown votes alone will get conservatives 95% of the electoral victories that they want 
without having to literally sign on to this cockamamie idea of throwing away uh, a duly cast vote. So like my hope for the more case is that the conservatives are well engorged on their democracy, um, anti-democratic rulings in other cases that they can leave this crazy bullshit behind. Yeah. I mean, that would be that that in some ways would be ideal because then there's a hope of coming back from it. <laughs> right. I mean, and I and I don't hold out a lot of hope for uh, for a lot of where we are on the state level, just simply because of how many states, how many laws. I mean, the last time I looked, it was like four hundred and thirty separate state laws had been passed to limit voting rights in some capacity since the 2020 election. And that, you know, that to me is such a huge part of the problem. Right. You know, you You've got to have legislatures that are democratic. You've got to have governors that are democratic in order for all of that to be fixed. And then even in that instance, when you've got Republicans who are willing to challenge it in front of a Supreme Court like this, it's kind of game over. So um, I, I try really hard not to be too fatalist about it. But when you look, for instance, at what's just happened in Georgia alone since 2020. It's you can't feed people who are standing in line for 12 hours. You know, polling places have been removed in predominantly black and brown districts, limiting them to like one polling place for thousands and thousands of people. It's really um, it's quite scary. And I agree with you. It's like, you know, they're kind of already getting what they want. So maybe they won't have to go quite that far. But on the other hand, when we look at the long term trajectory of this, like this has been the plan by the Kochs and the Mercers and others for decades to really roll back state legislatures and state laws to, until they can get what they want to begin with. And we've got a really long road ahead of us to try to pull a democracy back from the brink. I mean, look, the way that I look at it is that this is how white people are. This is how yeah. white people have always been in this country. The, well, everything happening in Georgia from 2013 to now is everything that happened in Georgia from 1865 until 1965. Yeah, it's the same playbook. It's the it's the same Jim Crow playbook being played out again since 2013, since John Roberts eviscerated Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. And for for your listeners who don't know, and we throw around these terms like everybody. Yeah, I know. It's the, it's the lawyers, right? You know, like we, we can talk at the in the legalese. Go ahead. But, but Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was the law that prevented the former Confederacy from reinstituting Jim Crow procedures. The way that pre-clearance worked, that was the legal jargon term for it, was that for the former Confederacy, before they changed their voting laws, they had to get approval from the federal government, which was not perfect, but was also not Georgia. Right. So when John Roberts took that away in a case called Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, that is what opened the floodgates for all of the voter suppression we're seeing not only in the historical uh, Confederacy, but also all the way all around the country. John Roberts has been an enemy of voting rights for his entire career. People don't know this, but but his first job, you know, after he goes to law school, he clerks. And then his first real job after clerking, he's brought into the William Smith Attorney General's office, Ronald Reagan's first Attorney General, William Smith, French Smith, I think, um, specifically to argue against the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So this is the 1982 amendments are the ones that expanded uh, the Voting Rights Act to include not merely uh, uh, 
discriminatory intent, but discriminatory outcome. So basically it changes so that, you know, in the in, when the Voting Rights Act first came out, white people had to be like, I hate the black people. Exactly. They can't vote. Right. And then after 82, it's just like if you end up not letting black people vote, that's also a violation of the Voting Rights Act. John Roberts's job was to argue against that. And it's an argument he lost to Ronald Reagan. Even Ronald Reagan in 1982 was just like, yo, I, I don't <laughs> I don't like black people voting more than anybody. But this is just this is just too racist for me to go yeah. against. So John Roberts lost that argument in 1982. But life is long. Yeah. And all John Roberts's career has been in the courts and especially on the Supreme Court is to roll back the voting rights gains that we have made since 1965. And so I, I think he's going to certainly do it again uh, this term. But like people people don't understand that that your your enemy on this, it's not even the crazy rabbit conservatives like they're bad. But this this is the this is the this is this oppression is brought to you by John Roberts. Yeah. And, and you know, is seated in the very origins of America, right? You know, I mean, this, this is a good moment to transition to your book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, which is, um, which is so, uh, like, I think one of the people who reviewed it called it pugnacious. And I found that to be a very accurate description for it, because it really, like, tears any veil of legitimacy off of the Constitution as it stands and really kind of takes us all the way back to all the reasons why the founders wrote what they wrote into the Constitution. So I want to hear a little bit from you about why you decided to write the book. I mean, I one of the things that I just love about it is that it's so like you're a truth teller, much like me. You know, you're out there speaking it as explicitly as possible, because for a lot of people, that's what they need in order to be able to hear it. The book itself does such a good job of just cutting through the bullshit mythology of, you know, the the erudite, fair and balanced nature of the law, you know, the statue with the blind justice holding the scales, and the way in which all of that is actually complete fabrication. It is the mythology of America. So, so why, did you, why did you decide to write the book, and why now? So... Let's go again back into my history. So I am yeah. in, I am a junior in high school, and I am on the mock trial team. And our mock trial teams, I went to a ritzy preppy school. Our mock trial team makes it to the nationals finals, which are in D.C. We don't win, but you know we're one of like the last hundred teams standing. Um, at the end, of the last round, which we didn't make, one of the judges for mock trial is Antonin Scalia. He judges great. Later, we have a whole, you know, gala conference, whatever, auditorium. He's taking questions from the students. I get one of my questions asked. And so I get up and I say, um, Justice Scalia, how can you and I didn't call it originalism because I didn't have that word then. But how can you how can you uh, um, uh, uh, promote a strict constructionist that's what we called it back in back when i was yeah. in high school a strict constructionist interpretation of the constitution when it's so clear that some of these laws were wrong and were made by racist people and they must be overturned so how do you kind of put those things together and scalia went <laughs> just laughed at me yeah laughed at me and then, is this what you guys are teaching kids because that that's not great <laughs> And then, you know, you laugh, your authority figure laughs at a student in the middle of a crowded high school auditorium. Yeah. Guess what? Everybody's laughing at me. The entire yeah. time. So he never answers my question. I get laughed out of the room and I'm sitting there just like, mm, mm, I'm going to get my fucking answer. I'm going to get 
my fu- and so you go to law school and you 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 study and you learn and you realize there is no good answer. You realize that the reason why he had to laugh my question off is that at a fundamental level, there is no good answer for why I, as a black man, am living under the laws as they would have been interpreted by my captors. That is bullshit. Yes. And so the idea that our entire kind of constitutional system and our and our, and our system of stare, stare decisis, um, um, according to conservatives, needs to be based on a hearkening back to what slavers would have thought, what misogynists would have thought, what rapists would have thought is offensive to me. That's not the only way to do it. That's yep. certainly not the best way to do it. Yep. And so the book comes from that fundamental perspective. I call it a black guy's guide to the constitution because it's that fundamental perspective that is it's not it's not a it's not a guide to the constitution for black people. Right. It is a black guy's guide to the constitution. Right. It comes from that fundamental perspective of this document was written to enslave me. It was written to keep me and, and my people enslaved in perpetuity. Let's look at it through those eyes. Yeah. Let's look at what, what's really good here and what's really problem. Let's look at how they did it and let's look at how the, the, the current conservative interpretation of the Constitution always brings us back to that fundamental white supremacy. That's what the book is is about. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's it's really interesting to hear you tell that story. I've heard you tell that story before. I haven't heard it strung all the way through to the purpose of the book. And I will just tell you that I, I was the president of the moot court in my law school and the final constitutional, um, final constitutional law oral argument was in front of Scalia and Alito, who at the time was on the third circuit and another district court judge. Oh and, God. um, and my interview, with the just like straight up Mistopheles? like what? The- <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. She and she is—I don't remember her name, unfortunately, but she, of course, you know, this was in Washington D.C. I went to GW, and it was lined up in a particular way so that she was the voice of reason in the oral argument, and the and these two were not. And I watched Scalia do something very similar to what you're describing to the two people who were in my section at law school um, who lost. Um, one of whom was a black man. And I had my own moment in that moment of understanding that I was not cut out to kowtow to that. Um, different kind of reaction, you know, but an, but a reaction that was very much about I'm I'm here representing the law school and I don't want to be complicit in this. I don't want to be a participant in what what I'm watching happen. And so it's just very interesting to me how like, you know, we have these interactions. They, they're obviously through the lens of our various forms of intersectional oppression. Right. And the experiences that we bring to the table with it. But where you're meeting somebody who's supposed to be the lauded pinnacle of the legal system in America and what you see instead is the man behind the curtain. That was my experience with Scalia. Obviously, very clearly your experience with him as well. And it's interesting how um, those seminal experiences for both of us kind of led to a particular path of, of speaking back. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by it in your own history and, and how it kind of led to that. Um, right, and, it, and it makes you read, right? Like, I think, yes. I think that's, the, that's the thing. Like, it, like you, 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 you don't... Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of go back and forth on some of these issues of 
campus safe spaces and and do we need basically affirmative action for conservatives to make sure that they're represented in the and 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 especially in legal academia you know and i look i don't think that there's any value in promoting people who have kind of deleterious, hurtful, wrong views. I don't think that there's a whole lot of academic integrity in throwing a, a bunch of professors together who are going to joke about the N-word. Like, I don't, I don't see what the what the point is of that, right? But I do see, at least in my own personal history, I, I, have, I have found real value in taking classes uh, taught by conservative professors. In fact, when I was in college and law school, I kind of went out of my way to take what electives I had with conservative people, right? I took I took classes with Harvey C. Mansfield. I took classes with uh, George Will. You know, I took classes with Tom Friedman. I took classes with people who weren't, it's not just that they were going to challenge me and like take me out of my intellectual comfort zone, but it's like I want to hear the conservatives' arguments from the conservatives' mouth. Like I want them to actually say it to my mm-hmm. face let me say what I'm going to say back and like ha- be because that's to me, that's learning. You got to learn your enemy just as much as you have to learn your friend. Um, and so one of the things that my, I think my my experiences with conservative professors or or even just run ins with conservatives has really taught me is to be is to read as much as I can and be as prepared as I can when I go into these arguments. And so then if people then see me like on TV or on C-SPAN or whatever, kind of me handling these conservative arguments, I like to say that like for like for the call-in, radio call-in caller who is asking me a question, that's the first time they've really formulated the question, right? That's the 150th time that I've answered it. Yeah. So like, you know, that that it's a it's a constant kind of battle, but like the the benefit is that, you know, some of my arguments, and I think this comes through in the book, are quite sharp because I've thought about it like for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I don't disagree with you on that. You know, I mean, like I had Jonathan Turley as a law professor when I was in school. I mean, I'm kind of amazed at what he ended up being because he was sort of a environmental law professor when I had him. He but I also changed. he has changed like in a really serious, frightening way. Um, but I also had Paul Butler. And, you know, one of the things that was great, I had him for, I think, criminal procedure. And and it was at a time I was in law school during the O.J. Simpson trial. And it was at a moment where there was a huge discussion about, you know, obviously we're still talking about it, which is really not how it should be. But, you know, the impact of and it was post Rodney King, the impact of policing and the criminal justice system on black men in America and hearing it from Paul Butler, who at that point was already working on these issues very explicitly pushed me also. Like, I think there's the benefit of sitting in conversation with people um, and learning how to be a better advocate for the things that you care about. And my experience, you know, I granted, I had some really hardcore Federalist Society people in law school who I battled with nonstop. Um, But I also, you know, want to shout out that part of the benefit of having folks like you and folks like Paul out there in major media right now is that it pushes the rest of us to also be better on the things that we care about and to continue evolving. And I say this particularly for like the white folks who are engaged in activism in our awareness of our anti-racism work in relation to the criminal justice and justice system in general, like rights in general. And I think it's just your voice is so critical. Um, and the book is so critical, I think, to that conversation, because the other thing that I, you know, I'm really big on and you're really good at this is making the law accessible 
to people who didn't go to law school, right? Because the legalese of it can feel overwhelming and it does feel like it's it's so well gatekept even by the language of it, that being able to translate it so people really understand what's happening is um, is just so necessary for activists and organizers and people who really want to know what's going on. This is why I have my job, right? Like, I, I honestly believe that I don't have to do a lot of spin. If I can just explain the law and explain what's happening to you so that you can see it as clearly as I can see it, you'll do the activism yourself. You'll get angry yourself. You'll be just as pissed off about this as I am if you simply understand what's actually happening. My job is to demystify, not to dumb down. Dumbing it down serves no purpose. Not to lose the nuance. Losing the nuance serves no purpose. But to explain what's actually happening in, without the jargon in, in an accessible way um, so people of you know average intelligence can, can get it, right? Like if you read my book, all you have to do to be able to read my book and understand what I'm talking about is be literate, which I know is like a high bar for like Republicans. <laughs> but like for, <laughs> for most of us, like that's not a high bar. Right. right. You, if you're, and if you're literate, you're going to be able to follow along with what I'm talking about and understand what I'm saying because I've done the kind of homework and I've done the, I put in the effort to make it accessible without losing some of the nuance, some of the, you know, it's so funny that, that you know, I, people have been referring to me as Ellie Mistal, who once called the Constitution trash, like ever since the book came out, and it's, I'm, I'm fine with it because I did call it that. Yeah. But it's also like, did you get to page two of the book? Yeah, because exactly. Literally, page one. <laughs> and right. there are like, honest to God, like I make some Republican points in that book. There's some, there's some honest to God, like radical ideas I have in that book. And you've, you're only coming at me on page one. Right. Right. And, and honestly, I don't think it takes, you know, you're, you're right that if you get to page two of the book, like let alone page 110, you're going to understand why the constitution is trash. It's you can't walk away from it. I mean, those of us who are lawyers who have been in this for a while have known this for quite some time and yet have been called out for describing it that way. Um, and yet it's so obvious. Well, people, I mean, that's act like it's, people act like it's biblical. People act like it's gospel. And it's not. Not only is it not, it was like designed not to be. Right. One of the only places where I agree with the racist, misogynist, sexist founders of our country is that we all agree that the Constitution was a work in progress. Right. And the yeah. idea that this is now ossified into something that is biblical in nature is it's just off putting to me. So, like, one of the things that's been happening on the book tour, people are like, well, if you're so smart, how, wh how could you write a better constitution? Popular election of the president. Boom. Yeah. Better. Right. Like, better. It's, <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. And, you know, I, I will also just say that as somebody, you know, back when I was practicing, I used to do some human rights work and I was involved with people who actually wrote constitutions for like countries that were newly born democracies. There are so many ways to make improvements to it that once you start getting into it are just so obvious. Right. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the prospect of a constitutional convention has now been taken over by the right wing as uh, an aim and a goal, which is terrifying in and of itself. Um, it should but be re easier. Remember, the reason why it's terrifying is because, and I agree with you 100%, it's terrifying. But the reason why it's terrifying is because those right-wing forces that want to have a new constitutional amendment are the same forces that wouldn't allow for equal representation in such a convention should it ever happen, right? 
So if we did a constitutional convention where people were represented by population and so white people were only yeah, 42% of the convention, that might be interesting. That yes. might be interesting, right? Yes. But we're not going to have a convention where white people are only 52% of the of the convention. And we're not going to have a convention where the 52% of white people are brought from every economic strata. Instead, right. it'll be the 52% of the white people chosen by the Koch brothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then another 20, 25% of white people chosen by other kind of corporate interests. Like, that's why a constitutional convention is scary to me. Not because they're... Not because the Constitution is good as it's written, not because if you look at what other countries have done, you know, I, I, I point out in the, in the book, you know, when South Africa, you know, got rid, you know, got rid of apartheid, they weren't just like, oh, where's some whiteout on this uh, apartheid whiteout? Like, no, they, they threw out yep. their racist trash Constitution yep. and they came up with a new one in a new constitutional convention that included everybody. In right. proportion to their population. That's actually a good idea. White supremacists wouldn't let us have that kind of constitutional convention in America. Yeah. I mean, you tell the story about the broken down car in the book and the kind of all the excuses that are given for, you know, why the car can't be fixed. And as an analogy for the nature of the Constitution, you know, that what would we be if we if we just tossed the whole thing out and started over? It could be done. I mean, it would be chaos, but it could be done. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think people are so short sighted about. Just because this is what we're, we have right now doesn't mean it's what we should be stuck with. So. That brings me to a really good question, which is like, where do you honestly think we're headed? Where are we going to be after the midterms in your prediction? Okay, so the short term political answer is we as liberals are very lucky that the Republicans nominated complete crazy people for the Senate, right? Like they had a legitimate chance to take back the Senate this year. And if they don't, it's because they nominated actual idiots, right? Yes. Idiot in Georgia. Puppy killers. Right. A puppy killing TV doctor in Pennsylvania. I don't even know what they got going on in Arizona. Like they've nominated like bad candidates. And that might be the thing that saves the Democrats bacon in the Senate. In the House, I mean, what one of the things that we've seen from the American people, and again, it goes back to American white, uh, white people, and specifically it goes back to American white women, yep. is that when the chips are down, they vote for Republicans. We know in this election, a majority of white people will vote for the Republican candidates. We just, we, because that happens all the time. We know something around 60% of white men are going to vote for the Republican and 51, 52, 53% of white women are going to vote for the Republican. And then a whole bunch of people aren't going to vote at all. Like that, that, that is just our reality. So if we had the majority of the country vote, there is no way these fascists would win, but a majority of the country won't vote. And that puts the House, I think, in direct jeopardy in the short term. Yeah. In the I long mean, term, I, I don't think, and you, know, you and I have talked about this before, but like, I don't think people have any real idea of what a 6-3 generational Supreme Court looks like. like I, I don't think people know how fucked we are. Yeah. Because if you let these people stay in power... There is nothing, there is no liberal agenda to speak of that will pass muster with this extremist conservative court. You want something to happen on voting rights? Tough luck. It will never happen. Gun rights, they will overturn that before breakfast. You want to get a bunch of Democrats in Congress and pass a national um, abortion protection law? The Supreme Court will overturn that law. They just overturned a 50-year-old 
precedent of their own. You think they'll have problems saying that the national protection of abortion is a violation of the Commerce Clause and blah, 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 you can't have it? There's, there's no way. There's nothing on gun violence that's going to happen. There's nothing on climate change that's going to happen. There is nothing that you care about that can survive a 6-3 conservative court. If you allow them to stay in power where we're going long term is only the Christo-fascist direction that these people want to take us. It's been it's particularly tough, um, frankly, to look at this through the lens of being a lawyer and everything that we know about this. And I think a lot of people are waking up to this. Some of us saw this coming a long time before. Like I can remember in 2015 having conversations with people as we were trying to mobilize for the 2016 election about how much was at stake and people not believing it, people not wanting to face it. Um, it's so obvious now that, you know, the anything that we that we pass in terms of legislation, if it goes in front of this court, is is not going to survive because they're ideologues. They're not actually doing their job. They're not actually upholding the law as it's supposed to be upheld. So that brings me to a really good point that I wanted to talk about with you, which is the issue of court expansion. We all know that Biden had this committee that made these recommendations that said that court expansion wasn't a good idea. Um, I think you and I are on the same page that 13 should be the minimum at this point because we have 13 circuits, only nine justices. Was nine, there has been court expansion in the past on the basis of the number of circuits. The court has not kept up. A very easy solution would be to simply add four Supreme Court justices. And, uh, and you know, we could do it if we had the, the Senate. What's what are the next steps there? And, you know, frankly, I think there's a there's a huge need for, you know, our activist contingencies and the folks in this audience who mobilize around these issues to really put as much pressure as possible on the Biden administration around this, assuming that the midterms go in a positive direction, which is a huge assumption, I know. But, you know, assuming that the midterms go in a positive direction, um, how do you see that potentially happening? Do you think there's any real possibility of it? Do I think there's... Elizabeth, let me put it like this. The the key difference between the Republican MAGA base and the Democratic base is that the Republican MAGA base not only understands how important the Supreme Court is, but is willing to punish Republican politicians who are soft on the Supreme Court. The Democratic base has never been, up to this point at least, been willing to punish Democratic candidates in primaries who are soft on, Supreme, on the Supreme Court. And I can prove that by pointing to 2020, when Joe Biden was the softest on Supreme Court expansion of pretty much everybody else in the field. I mean, I, I didn't get into the coffee man's belief about court expansion, but you know, or mayor stop and frisk. But the rest of them were at least willing to entertain the idea in a way that Joe Biden never ever was. And as far as I can tell, it didn't cost him a vote. It didn't cost him a state. He didn't lose the primary because of his ridiculous old school Diane Feinstein level stance on Supreme Court expansion. I mentioned Diane Feinstein. That was not idly. Look at our Democrats in Congress. Look at our Democrats in the Senate, right? We still have these these older people who remember a time when Republicans on the Supreme Court could be worked with that no longer exist. I, mm -hmm. I wrote a piece in The Nation that I would love people to check out that really kind of tracks the difference between Republicans in Dianne Feinstein's era and Republicans now, right? And the, the, the extremist turn that Republicans have, have, have taken. But people like Dianne Feinstein still remember the good old days, and aren't willing to engage in the current reality of our situation. Even when you look at the Senate Judiciary Committee that's being currently headed by Dick Durbin, 
because he was senior and he wanted it as opposed to Sheldon Whitehouse, who has been one of the most important voices on court reform for his entire career. Why is that the case? Because the Democrats are backwards when it comes to prioritizing this issue. And then you look in Congress, where any court expansion bill has to start. There is a bill sponsored by Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia, Mondaire Jones, uh, Democrat from New York, Democrat from New York, who just lost his primary to a white candidate after a redistricting who doesn't come out for court expansion. So you see what I'm saying? Like at, at, at the basic level, Democrats do not pay a price for not caring about the courts. Republicans cannot get elected unless they pledge fealty to Leonard Leo and the federal society view of, of, of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And that is and, why we lose. Yeah, exactly. And I will just say that it's, uh, to me, it's even worse than that because there is a contingent in the Democratic Party where any time that you call these people on the carpet says, what are you doing? This is so much better than Trump, right? Um, the, and I see this particularly speaking of white women, among white women who are Democrats who are like, it could be so much worse. Just remember how bad it was under Trump. Why are you pushing in this direction? I literally have had people, well, we've talked about this too. There's, there, there are particular public figures on Twitter who have come for both you and I over issues like this for saying this administration is not going far enough. This administration isn't doing enough. And you know, one of the things that I think is really key here is that we have seen examples so far, not as many as I would like, but where The progressive left, the activist left gets really loud about how disappointed they are and what the administration is doing. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, we see movement on it. There was this whole thing about executive orders that you and I were out there on post-Dobbs. Now they are actually administering abortions inside the VA in every state, even the states where it's not legal for them to do that uh, on, on state property. That's something that obviously could have led to more. You and I were both suggesting more, but there is a pushback inside the Democratic Party against asking for things that honestly we legitimately need. And one of the things that I just find so frustrating about this is that on issues like this, where you do have someone like Senator Whitehouse, who is out there talking about dark money funding going into candidates that end up on the Supreme Court, who has been publicly questioning the Federalist Society for forever. Like I heard him talk before the 2020 election and um, man, he just gets it so clearly yes. and for us not to be out only there person, just another white house thing white house the only person that is staying on fbi director and brett kavanaugh friend chris ray yes about the hundreds of tips about misconduct by brett kavanaugh that ray failed to investigate white house yeah. is the only person staying on that story yeah. And, and his positions are, you know, on top of it, this is what's just so crazy to me about it, about the way people push back. His positions are legitimately reasonable. Like, I don't want dark money go being routed in the direction of Supreme Court candidates. I don't think one singular society organization should have a say in who gets nominated to the Supreme Court. I mean, there are, the, the arguments that he is making are about protecting Um, You know, I mean, and again, I always have to say this through the lens of like the white supremacy that pervades every aspect of the American judicial system. But he he wants to preserve the process of it to make sure that the people who sit on the Supreme Court with so much authority and so much power are not unduly influenced by organizations with money coming from God knows where. So I just the, the whole reason I'm saying this is that I want people to be to understand that 
when we take positions that push the administration in the direction of something that is about rights and freedom and equity for all, there will be people who will push back and hate us. And that doesn't make it wrong. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I obviously 100% agree. Like, look, the I am happy that Biden is president because you're right. He is better than Trump, but that doesn't mean that I'm that, satisfied. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I was sitting here thinking about Elizabeth Warren, constitutional law professor, right? When you were talking about all of this, who and I was a Warrenite during the 2020 campaign, who was very pro-court expansion when she was challenged on it on the trail. You know, I mean, there are people who took other positions in relation to this and, um, you know, and we are where we are. And I don't and they think lost. better and, than, and, so, and they lost, but I don't think better than Trump should be the bar, right? Like that to me is the floor, right? Yeah. But, but I always come back to, 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 you know, now why did they lose? And this is why, where I come back, like the, the ultimate power still rests with the people um, and with the electoral process, right? If they hadn't lost, things would be different. And so like at some point, like the, the average base voter in the Democratic Party, and especially I think the young voter in the Democratic Party, is going to have to kind of get on board with understanding the third branch of government, right? And I, you know, I, I always look at this from a media perspective, right? Like think about how many reporters we have covering the president, right? Think about how many reporters we have covering and explaining Congress. Now think about how many reporters we have covering and explaining the courts, and then think about how many reporters of color we have covering and explaining the courts, and then think about how many reporters we have covering and explaining the courts in a way that is translatable to younger people, right? And once you, once you get down there, it's like three people, right? Yes. Where, and, 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 one. <laughs> and, and, and that's that's a huge part of the problem. So if younger voters don't understand how important the courts are, you, you kind of fall into this, you know, oh, we, we need something happening on climate change. So we got to elect a president. We got to elect a congressman who who has a Green New Deal. Look, I think the Green New Deal is great. John Roberts will strike down the Green New Deal like while he's on the toilet. Like he doesn't even have to like go to work to do that. Yes. And young people need to understand that one-to-one -one connection so that if there is something that you want in your life, you cannot have it without also having the Supreme Court. Yes, yes. I mean, that is that's that is a very clear explanation of exactly what's at stake. And I think people are, um, are not aware enough, I agree with you, of exactly where we could be headed if there isn't court expansion and if this is the way things stand. I mean, it's decades, lifetime appointments. And, and, you know, all of these people are very young. I mean, I, I can remember when John Roberts was nominated going like, oh my God, he's only 40. Yep. And, you know, that's decades and decades of a Roberts court under the thumb now of a six to three conservative majority. It's, um, it's galling. All right. You know who so, the median, can I just yeah. end with this? Do you know who the median justice is on the Supreme Court? The swing voter on the Supreme Court? It's Roberts. It's Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, it's Brett. Oh, it's okay. alleged attempt at rapist Brett Kavanaugh. If you look at the last term, um, Roberts and Brett were tied 97% of the time those they were in the majority. 97% of the time, Brett Kavanaugh is where the case ends up going, folks. That's cool. And that's, that's the rest of my natural life if nothing is done. That's horrifying. All right. I have to ask you our final three questions, uh, okay. which, are, which are the questions that we ask everybody. Very dark conversation today. You and I are clearly on it. Humor gets us through. But I really do want to know, what keeps you going? 
I have kids. Kids! <laughs> like, you have kids. Like, I don't want them to have to deal. I don't want them to have to fight these battles by themselves. And the, at the very least, when we are living in whatever kind of dystopian authoritarian future um, that they find themselves in, I want them to be able to look back and say, well, you know, dad fought. Dad yep. tried. I want them to be able to tell, to tell each other that, that, they're, that they're come from a line of people um, who tried their best. So, like, you know, I look at them and I think about the world that they're going to live in, and that's what keeps me going. My kid, my oldest kid, he's 10, he is so concerned right now uh, with the people who are homeless in Florida because of the hurricane. He's like, how can we let this happen? Like, and, you know, you think about like trying to explain like, well, we've let this happen because of climate change and also because, you know, like there's so many interlocking factors to how can we let this happen. But I try never to lose his 10 year old sense of outrage. Right. Because we shouldn't be letting this happen. We're, yeah. we're one of the wealthiest nations on Earth. Nobody needs to die in a storm here if we put the infrastructure in place to save people. So you kind of use that as kind of your guiding star, I think a lot. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I have, a, I have a similar 10 year old who, um, who says similar things and also is, um, is so astute right now about where we are that when they're watching shows on Disney, on Disney plus, we'll say, um, mom, there's an LGBTQ kid in this. Finally, mom, I'm looking at the <laughs> show from 2011 and it's all white people. That's not right. Um, you know, and it, and it's the same thing. I mean, I guess you and I will, will see each other in the gulag, but you know, the reality of, of where we are is that my hope is that, you know, even if we do end up in the worst case scenario, you know, again, our kids are going to see that we were fighters. I I'm so with you on that. I mean, it's, there's no other alternative, right? It's like, once you've got kids in there, it's their entire future. There's no way you can quit. Um, okay. Most pressing issues that need our attention right now. I mean, we've kind of covered that. I think that's pretty much like this. It's the Supreme Court or nothing. One hundred percent Supreme Court. I I, I guess to to, to add uh, uh, to the to the general conversation about the Supreme Court and their attacks on democracy. Like you know, don't, don't sleep. Don't sleep on this general Republican attack on voting rights. It is. It is. Uh, I think the best way I can put it is. This was essentially an apartheid nation until 1965. I don't start the clock in, in 1865 because the Southerners immediately reinstituted Jim Crow um, laws and prevented full participation in democracy. This, this was an apartheid nation in 1960. It's a 1965. 1965, the Voting Rights Act, I've already said, the most important piece of uh, legislation in American history. And with it, within one generation, you went from an oppressed people to the first black president. And so what do white conservatives do? As soon as that black president wins again, as soon as it proves that it's not a fluke, as soon as that black president proves that there is an emerging minor majority minority voting power in this country, they gut the Voting Rights Act in 2013. That was their response to Barack. Like the MAGA response to Barack Obama was like, oh, let's just elect an orange racist man. The, 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 the more intelligent conservative response to Barack Obama was to take away the Voting Rights Act. So don't sleep on the effect of that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Okay, and final question. Um, what, what, how can we best support efforts to, to do this? What are your thoughts on what needs to happen to actually propel change? People really underestimate the value of calling their senators. So my my little story here is is you know so we, I, we I've criticized Biden. Let, let's say something nice about Biden. Biden has been the best president in American history when it comes to appointing diverse judges. 
It's not even close. Barack Obama can't hold the candle to what Biden has done on the bench in terms of not just racial and ethnic diversity, but gender diversity, diversity of experience. He's important more public defenders to the bench than anybody ever. Biden has been great when it comes to appointing judges. The bad ones, the stinkers, they're all blue slip judges. They're all judges that knew somebody who knew somebody who knew a senator. And so calling i got one in new york state with with with, uh jennifer um reardon who was a gibson dunn anti-environment big tobacco lawyer that was buds with Kristen gillibrand and now she gets a lifetime appointment never underestimate the 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 value of calling your senator and telling your senator that you're paying attention to judicial appointments and that you care who ends up in these lifetime positions and that you're going to hold them accountable for those um, for those picks because senators senators think you don't care. Again, Republican senators, they know you do, but Democratic senators think you don't care. So if you want to do something, anybody at home can do this. Call your senators. Make sure they know that you care about this issue. That's great. Thank you so much. It's fantastic advice. Thank you, Ellie Mistel, for joining us. The book is Allow me to retort a black guy's guide to the Constitution. We're going to have to have you back because I did not even get to talk to you about your days in big law and my days in big law and plenty of other things that we will have to discuss. And we're also going to have a lot to talk about after the midterms. I have no question about it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So just to wind up this week's episode, one of the things that I took away from this interview and this discussion that I think is so critical to where we find ourselves right now in the context of living through it is that there are things that we can be doing to educate ourselves and understand the critical nature of the justice system in America to everything that we want to accomplish. And Ellie's advice is really wise. Call your senators. Make it known that you are paying attention to what's happening on the bench. Make it known that you expect that our judicial nominees will be ones who believe in voting rights, who believe in upholding access to the polls, who believe in the Voting Rights Act specifically, and who will preserve laws that are going to be added to the books and that are already on the books that create equity and justice, that value civil and human rights. Make sure that you understand and you take action in relation to your elected representatives to preserve our judiciary in a functional way. Because as Ellie made clear, without that, nothing that we gain is going to stick. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.